Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Um, Please, at the end of my reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Kindly respond by saying, thanks be to God. We're reading from Ezra chapter 1, from verses 1 to 11. I read. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judah. Any of his people amongst you may go up to Jerusalem, in Judah, and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And anyone in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, the goods with goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to all free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithredat, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29, gold bowls, 30, matching silver bowls, 410, other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shesh Bazaar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Um, Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you Um, we thank you because unto you shall the garden of your people be 
And that's great news because they've not gathered to me. That's great news because they've not gathered to everybody that ministered on this stage today. They've gathered to you. After all, we've got nothing to offer. To you belong eternal life. To you belong peace. To you belong joy. To you belong satisfaction. So we come to you today as those who are in need of you, who are in need of what you have. We ask that you supply us in the name of Jesus. Lord, as your word goes forth, we ask in the name of Jesus that your word will come to sanctify us, to mold us, to make us more like you in the name of Jesus. We ask for everyone who is discouraged that your word will lift up. We ask for everyone who is feeling sick, your word will make whole. We ask for everyone who is in darkness, your word will bring to light. We ask for everyone who is suffering the pangs of death, your word will bring to life in the mighty name of Jesus. At the end of this hall, what only you can do, do something in our lives that people will be like, no, this is indeed the finger of God. This is not what Tommy preached in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for you answer prayers. In Jesus' mighty name, we are prayed. Amen, amen. All right. Welcome. In case you're worshiping with us for the first time, maybe online or you're here. My name is Tommy Olariwaju. I'm one of the guys on the preaching team. And as my new name is now, Amanigu, right? Whether you guys like it or not. Um, well, yeah, it's so good to have you around. Um, in case, again, if you're watching with us for the first time, you are in a great place. Um, we're starting a new series today. Um, I still want you to say who, who. I know you've done it before. Do uh, <laughs> Thank you. Right, so we're starting a new series. That's my G. That's my G. Thank you, Olaito. Anyways, um... And the title of the series is A, a Gracious Turnaround. A Gracious Turnaround. Um, life can be hard, right? Any witness in the house? Yeah, life, life can be hard. And in, in this moment, in fact. <laughs> and here's the thing, in fact, if life is not hard for you right now, just give it a little bit of time. A little bit of time, you get what I mean? No, because here's the thing, most of the time, most of the time, whether I like it or not, it's almost like a cycle. It passes, but it always comes back. You miss something else in front. Or even if you're not in one right now, maybe you just finished getting out of one, right? And God has been good to you, right? And um, most of the time, when we're in these kinds of situations, what we really, really want, what we really, really need is a turnaround, right? And again, just as the title has said, a gracious turnaround. What we're actually discussing today is this, that the kind of turnaround that God actually brings about is not a turnaround that is dependent on anything in and of ourselves. It's not a turnaround that we can earn. Hence, gracious turnaround. And the good news that Christianity brings, the good news that the Bible brings is that God specializes in gracious turnarounds. In fact, the whole Bible is a compilation of gracious turnarounds. You go to Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, um, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And creation started. It's really a story of a gracious turnaround. It's not like the earth did anything to earn it. Or we move to Exodus, and we find out that the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt, and they cry out unto God, and God um, decides to act on their behalf and God begins to judge the Egyptians and judge the Egyptian gods as well. He's sending darkness. The Bible says that darkness could be touched. It was that thick. He's sending frogs. He's sending flies. He's killing their firstborn sons. And in fact, to cap up the turnaround that the Israelites eventually experienced, he passed the Red Sea on their behalf. Once again, 
stories in the Bible are really all about God's gracious turnaround. The children of Israel eventually get to the promised land and now they rebel against God. God sends other nations to deal with them, kind of. And then they begin to complain and ask the Lord for help. And God sends these people we call judges, like Deborah, like, like um, Gideon, like um, Ehud, Othniel, Samson, to deliver them. And God uses these people to cause a gracious turnaround. In fact, if we get to the New Testament, we find the, gracious, the greatest gracious turnaround ever in that Christ himself, Jesus, took on humanity, came to the earth to die for your sins and my own sins. And because of what he has done, we have been moved from darkness to light, from death to life, from being sick to being made old. The old Bible is really about gracious turnarounds. And maybe you are here, you've read passages in the Bible like the Acts of the Apostles where people have been born blind from, since the day they were born or people have been lame since birth. And yet Peter's shadow or the cloaks of Paul will be what is going to cause a gracious turnaround. So yes, we all agree that the Bible is filled with all these dramatic things that God uses to cause gracious turnarounds. But here's the thing. What happens when our lives are more like the book of Ruth and Esther than they are like the Acts of the Apostles. You know what I mean? If you read the book of Esther and the book of Ruth, one thing you will not find there is God necessarily doing anything. Last year, we studied the book of Ruth, and what you, what, what we, one of the things we studied was this, that Ruth actually encountered a gracious turnaround when she encountered Boaz. But there is the way the Bible describes it. The Bible says, and Ruth happened to be walking in the field where Boaz was walking. So it seemed as if Ruth only met Boaz by chance, not as if God was doing anything. And maybe you are here and your life feels that way. As if God is playing chance with your life. This one enters, this one doesn't enter. And God is not doing it. It doesn't seem like God is moving. It doesn't seem like God is doing anything with your life. Or maybe, in fact, you are here and there is this question, there is this thing that is nagging. Most of the time, we don't say it because, God forbid, we declare the truth of how we feel in church. You get what I mean? But we really, really feel it deep inside of us. That it does seem as if God, many times, doesn't act as much as he does act. Let me explain it this way. In our experience, we don't like to talk about it. It's like a family secret that everybody knows, but we just keep quiet about it. We have more people that have prayed to God for healing and didn't get it than those that actually prayed to God for healing and actually got it. So it actually seems as if God is hardly doing anything in the world. It seems as if God is hardly moving. And many of us are crying out like Gideon probably was crying out in Judges, where we're saying, where is the God that we have read about that was parting the Red Sea? Where is the God that we have read about that was raining food from the sky? Because it seems like he's not doing anything in my own life. Because here's what Gideon was saying, and here's what many times we actually feel. That what is the point of hearing about what God can do, and God is not doing anything in my own life? In fact, many times, that's the reason why we do not pray. Because you're not even sure if he's going to answer you anyway. Does he really move? Does he always answer when we cry out on him? And maybe you are here, you are saying, I feel stuck. I've been at this point for a very, very long time. I keep on failing all the certification exams I've been, I've been taking. I keep on failing the promotion. I'm still here. In fact, it has become worse now. They've increased the foil price. Things are going up. I don't know how I'm going to survive. And it seems that God is not moving, like God is not doing anything about our situations. 
But what Ezra is going to try and show us is this. That God is always moving. We read in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 5. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord moved the heart of, the, the, the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 5. Then the family edge of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved. So here's the thing. Here's the thing that is constant. God is always moving. However, the thing that he moves might be different. The thing that he moves might not be what you are thinking, thinking is going to move. The thing that he moves might not be what you want him to move. However, God is always moving. And that's why we titled this sermon, God is still moving. Even in our lives, even when we don't see it, a songwriter said, even when I don't see it, you are what? You are walking. Even when I don't see it, you are walking. He never stops walking. He never stops walking. And many times, this might actually be good news for me and you. The fact that God doesn't always move what we want him to move. Because what do we really know about what needs to be moved in the first place? Think about it. You do not make the decisions in your family based on the desires of your three-year-old. Why should God make decisions concerning your life based on your own desires necessarily? What do you actually know? So it seems to me that many times it is good news that God is actually not moving the things that you want him to move. For some of us need to get to a point where we're actually praising God that God didn't move that thing I wanted him to move. Maybe sometimes we need to thank God that God didn't let you get that contract. Or God didn't let you marry that person. Or God didn't let you get that promotion. Why? Because when God is moving, his duty is not just to expose you to good things. It is to protect you from bad things too. God is always moving. Somebody said when God wants to destroy a person, the first thing he says to them is let your will be done. If God ever says to you that have it your way, do you know the best way to destroy a three-year-old? Let him do whatever his heart desires. If he sees fire, touch. He sees God, jump inside. So it is God's protection when he actually doesn't do what we expect him to do. And that is what is happening in the book of Ezra. That's what I'm going to try and show us today. So just a quick background story about the book of, the book of Ezra. Of course, the story doesn't start in Ezra chapter 1. It starts way before then. The children of Israel were being, have been delivered from the Egyptians. And now they are in the wilderness. And God then comes and gives them laws. Essentially, which is what the law says. Obey me and you will prosper. Disobey me, you will fail. Obey me and you will flourish in the land that you are going into. Disobey me and you will be exiled from that land. But here's one thing we immediately notice about the children of Israel. Right there in the wilderness, they're a very stubborn set of people. And they constantly break God's heart. But here's the shocker. That didn't stop God from causing the gracious turn around in their life. Why? Because the turnaround was not dependent on the faithfulness of the Israelites. The turnaround was dependent on God's own faithfulness. That's why the Bible says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God's gracious turnaround is not dependent on your own perfection. You might be here, and the reason why you are not trusting the Lord for a turnaround is because there are still certain things you are struggling with. I've not perfected my holiness work yet. I've not started doing my devotion every day yet. God is saying, when I turn your situation around, it is not going to be dependent on how faithful you are. It's going to be dependent on how faithful I am. God is still moving among us. 
However, the story continues and they eventually get to the promised land and they meet God and they say, God, we want the king. And so God sends them Saul. Saul messes things up and God sends them David. Basically, King David is the greatest king Israel has ever had. However, we also know that he wasn't perfect, right? He, he was a pretty messed up man, right? However, so he was, he was a great guy still, in a sense. Um, the reign of King David is really the highest point Israel ever got to as a nation. The moment David left, everything went downhill from there. David transferred the kingship to his son, Solomon. And Solomon started well. And he asked the Lord for wisdom to be able to serve God's people. But then Solomon went ahead to do the thing that we all know Solomon for. Right? A very brave man. Started to be with a thousand women. Because one is not enough. Anyways, so he went for a thousand women. And this woman led his heart away from God. And now he's following foreign gods. He then became, came to a situation where... The wisdom that God had given him to serve the people, he now started using it to oppress the people. You find that with Rehoboam. So Solomon dies, and the people came to meet Rehoboam. And they said, your father is dead. But Solomon, eh, he was a bad man. He was a very bad man. All right. Why? Because he basically oppressed us. So why don't he just relieve us of some of this oppression? However, Rehoboam was a foolish man. Just the same way his father was a bad man. And he decides to double down on the oppression. And what happens is this, that the people rebel against the, against the kingship of David. And the kingdom splits in two. Ten tribes. Israel is made up of 12 tribes. Ten tribes move to form a different kingdom. And two tribes remain. The two tribes are Judah and Benjamin. They are called the southern tribes of Judah. Where is Benjamin? I don't know, but that's what the Bible calls him. The other ten are called the ten northern tribes of Gess. Israel, right? I, why? I thought, never mind. That's what the Bible calls it. Let's just go with it. All right? So they have been called the ten northern tribes of Israel. And when you read the book of First Kings and Second Kings, it is basically a story of how these two kingdoms go on disobeying God even when God keeps on sending them warnings that they should repent. If not, he's going to send them into exile. Every king that comes up, every king that becomes king in, especially the northern tribe of Israel, there was no single king that did well. In fact, this popular king, King Heab, that was where he came from. However, the southern tribes, some of them, some of the kings were good, but they had more bad kings, and God kept on warning them, repent, if not, I'm going to send you to exile. Repent, if not, I'm going to send you to exile. They didn't repent, and so God sends the kingdom of Assyria which was a world power at the time, to conquer the children, the northern tribes of, of Israel. And so he conquers them, he sends them on exile, and scatters them all around the world. Still, the kingdom of Judah, I mean, if you are Judah, what do you expect? I've seen them destroy this person. Let me confirm and align. No, they didn't do that. They kept on disobeying God. They kept on sinning against God. And God then sends Babylon to come and conquer the kingdom of Judah. Now, here's the thing. Babylon was also becoming a world power. And when you're becoming a world power, what you want to do is build empires. Now, when you're about to build empires, you cannot kill everybody you conquer, you understand? Because you want to build empire, So people have to come in. So your goal is just to conquer first. So, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, conquers Judah, takes certain people, the best of the best. That is when Daniel eventually was exiled from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. Takes the best of the best away, and put a puppet king to rule over them. Now, this is where it gets pretty interesting. 
The prophet, the prophet king decides to rebel against God. I mean, rebel against the, against the king Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you know, Rebecca people used to say something. They would say, Oritobama Jeko, right? Tiko Ebawa and Sokoto, Omayawo. I will say it in English, don't worry. Omayawo, Omawoko, Omalogbaikoyen. Let me say it in English. The head that we chop knock, even if the giver of the knock is in Sokoto, he will borrow money and see and, and see and take, take public transport and go and chop the knock there. Because how in the world did you expect to defeat Nebuchadnezzar? It was the puppet king, the person that put you there. You, you have two heads. Now, Nebuchadnezzar learns about this and he decides to destroy them. Why? Because when you are building an empire, one thing you cannot tolerate is rebellion. Because if one person rebels, ah, ah, he did it, he did it, ah, then we begin to do our own. So he's very, very brutal when he comes to squashing rebellion. So he eventually destroys Jerusalem. See, there is destruction and there is destruction. Nebuchadnezzar had a vendetta. He had grudge. And let me tell you how you know it. Because by the time you read the book of Ezra and you read on, you find out that something happens. They were laying the foundations of the temple again. They were laying the foundations of the city again. Why? Nebuchadnezzar didn't just break walls. He uprooted foundations. You get what I mean? Like, who sent you up? Just destroy No, no, no. He uprooted it to show that I have destroyed these people totally. Now, what he then does is then carry everybody and exiles them. It was some form of spiritual oppression that had psychological implications. Do you know what I'm talking about? See, when you want to destabilize a person, take him away from home. And most of you already understand what I'm talking about. Transition periods are usually the most difficult periods for human beings. In fact, if you notice very, very well, when do people pick bad habits? Transition periods. From GSS2, GS3, going to SS1. SS2 going to SS3, going to the other level. 100, I'm 300 level. Graduating. Why can't you serve? Or oh, you're about to change career. It's usually shaky. It's a transition period. It has a psychological effect. And so what Nebuchadnezzar did was shake them, exile them. However, there was also something going on. Because in those days, in those days, what had happened was people believed that the gods that you served were tied to the land where you are staying in. In fact, you find it in the text. Ezra, I mean, Cyrus himself in Ezra chapter 1 verse 3 says, any of his people, when he was giving the declaration, just as we read, let's just quote this. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. The God who is where? In Jerusalem. May who? Their God be with them. Because in his own mind, Yahweh is only the God of Jerusalem. He's not the God of Babylon. And so here's the thing. When they take you away from a land, they've taken you away from a God, and therefore it's not possible for you to cry out to any God for help, even when you're under the oppression of the enemy. So that was what, that was what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. The best way to destroy the rebellion was to disconnect people from their gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar succeeds in doing that. However, throughout the time when God was warning the people, that if you continue to do these things, you will get into exile. God started sending prophets to tell them that even though you go, to ex- you, go, you go into exile, there will be a period of restoration. God himself will turn things around. And he does that. One of the examples of those prophecies is in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1 and verse 13. Let me read. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of 
to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their hammer, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Almighty. So what God does here is prophesy. By the way, this prophecy is coming 100 years before Cyrus was born. 100 years before Cyrus was born. And so Cyrus then comes and then conquers Babylon. He becomes the king and he says, oh, okay, you know what? Again, the greatest problem you can have when you are the king of an empire is rebellion. The way Babylon was handling rebellion, we're not going to handle it that way. We're going to handle it a different way. Now, the way Babylon was handling rebellion is by instilling fear into the hearts of the people. Cyrus comes and says, no, we're going to instill love into their hearts. How? Let everybody go back to their houses. And so he issues a decree that every exile should go back home. That is, the decree you are reading in Ezra chapter 1 was not specific to Israel alone. Every other person was supposed to go. In fact, Cyrus took it a step further. He gave them transport fare as they were going. That thing that you see in Ezra chapter 1, he didn't do it for just Israel. He did it for everybody. He took it a step further again. He said, when you get to your place, go and build a temple to your gods. Now, many times you look at this and you'll be like, oh, this guy is really a great guy. Wow, he's just, he's a very, people call him a liberal. You know, he's just fighting for justice. But that's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing. But when you get there, this is what he will say. He said, when you get to that place and you build the temple to your gods, then pray for the king and his sons that the empire will continue to prosper. So he wasn't doing it for you. He was doing it for himself. And here's the picture, guys. That God is using the self-preservation tactics of an evil king to preserve his own people. Are we together? And that is where we get to in Ezra in Ezra chapter 1. Now, if you read Ezra chapter 1 very, very well, certain things begin to jump out at you. You notice that there is an evil king. Are we together? There is an evil king and there is a, and the Israelites are under the evil king. What you also notice is that the Israelites needed to go to the promised land while they were under the evil king. And when the Israelites are actually living, people around them give of what they have unto the Israelites so they can go on their journey. What does that remind you of? The Exodus. Exodus. This has happened before. When you are reading the Bible, pay attention to patterns. God wants you to see patterns when you are reading your Bible. So I, so I came up with a table. I didn't, okay, I didn't come up with it. What is it? <laughs> a table here to actually help us. Right? In fact, theologians actually call Ezra, chapter 1, the new Exodus. That's what they call it. Because here, look at it. In Exodus, they had a pagan king. His name was Pharaoh. In Ezra, they had a pagan king. What was his name? Cyrus. In, in Exodus, Israel is in a foreign land called Egypt. In Ezra, Israel is in a foreign land called Babylon. Here, the Israelites were gifted with silver and gold when leaving Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, 35 to 36. When we get to Ezra, the Israel, Israelites were also gifted with silver and gold when leaving Babylon. Here is what the Bible is trying to make us see. Here is what the Bible is trying to make us see. In one instance, in, in, in both instances, the Israelites needed to turn around. In all the, in both instances, sorry, we don't have to bring it up again. In both instances, the Israelites needed to turn around. In one instance, God dries up the Red Sea, turns water to blood. In another instance, it simply changes policies. Here is the message God wants you to hear today. Sometimes, God accomplishes extraordinary purposes with extraordinary means. 
but most of the time, God accomplishes extraordinary purposes through ordinary means, like policies. Again, in both cases, an exodus needed to happen. In one, God parted the seas. In the other, he used policies. In both instances, the turnaround actually happened. When God wants to cause a turnaround, he doesn't need to dethrone Pharaoh or dethrone Cyrus to cause these people to be free. God will cause his turnaround either way. And here's the thing. Why do we usually desire for extraordinary means? Why do we usually want God to do something really, really big, like maybe give an earthquake or part the Red Sea? It's because many times the hindrance, we, we have a destination. We have somewhere we want to go, a desired destination. We have somewhere we want to go. But then we have hindrances, and many times those hindrances can feel like mountains, and they can feel like seas. And so we have reason that it's only logical that if God wants to help me, he should just remove the mountain or part the sea, and I can simply walk to where I'm supposed to go. But here is a question we are not usually asking ourselves. Yes, the mountain is an entrance, but an entrance for who? It might be an entrance for you, but it's an entrance for God. God will still perform what he wants to perform with or without the mountain moving. God doesn't need to move the mountain. Many times we want him to actually part the Red Sea. And God is saying, I want you to walk upon the waters even when that water is still there. I'm not willing to part anything. Or maybe you are saying, oh, you know what? I'm not walking on any Red Sea. My life is not like that. It seems as if I'm drowning inside this sea. God has a word for you still. In Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2, speaking to the exiles, God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers... They shall not overwhelm you. Why? Because the river already has the potential to do so. So when you say you are passing through the water, it's not like you are wading through the water. You are inside. You are inside. But God has a way of, in a sense, creating some form of oxygen mask that will just make you keep on walking through the waters and yet you will not drown. The continuation of that verse in Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2 says, When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. It means many times God will not quench the fire, but he's still capable of quenching the violence of the fire, such that even as you're walking through the fire, it will not burn you. Somebody said when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, keep on walking. In the very same way, when you're walking through the fire, keep on walking. Keep on walking with faithfulness. Keep on walking in consistency. Keep on walking. Keep on showing up. Keep on believing. Keep on doing your nine to five. God is still going to use that ordinary means of your walk to cause a turnaround in your life. He doesn't need to quench the fire. All he needs is to quench the violence of it. You will still get to where you need to get to. God doesn't need Pharaoh to be removed before he causes a turnaround in our lives. But here's the thing, sometimes, sometimes, God's instrument of the turnaround, and I want you to pay attention here, sometimes God's instrument of the turnaround might have a face of evil, but carries the hand of good. So you read in the Bible, Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus was an evil king. Cyrus didn't care about the people. Cyrus was basically doing what he was doing for self-preservation. Yet, he had an evil face. Yet, God was still using that hand to deliver his people. And this is what God consistently does in the Bible. Even with Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers to 
eventually landed in Egypt. And he was there for years and he suffered and eventually became prime minister. And the brothers came to meet him and they were begging him. Joseph looked at them and he said, you don't need to beg me. You meant it for evil. That is, it had the face of evil. But God meant it for good. So God was still bringing good to it. This is still the same thing happening with the cross. The cross is a picture of death. It is a face of evil. Yet, God is still bringing about the good called salvation, called redemption, called healing, called wholeness through that very same evil. God does not need to take away the evil for you to experience a turnaround. Right there in the midst of the evil, right there in the midst of things not going the way you want it to go, God can still cause a turnaround in your life. Right there where your enemies are there, some of them might have said to you, nothing can come out of you. Some of them might have said to you, what you're attempting to do, it is impossible. But God has said, he will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies, right where they are. But here's the problem. If God eradicates the enemies, before who will you prepare your table? Because God needs to prepare my table. Who is with me? God needs to prepare my table. I don't need the evil to go. I don't need the enemies to go away. As long as I am feeding and they are there to witness it. God does not need to dethrone Pharaoh for you to get to where you need to get to. He doesn't need them. Pharaoh is a non-issue. Cyrus is a non-issue. All of them are God's instrument for your own good and for his glory. And this is the confidence that we have. That all things are working together for our good. When the Bible said all, it meant all. The good, the bad, the ugly. All of them are working together for our good. God is still moving, guys. God is still moving. But many times, the reason why we don't notice when God is moving is because we don't have a spiritualized view towards life. We have a secularized view. Now, a secularized view happens when you put on a lens that causes you to filter everywhere where God is acting on your behalf. Everywhere in life. When you just, you're, always, you're always skeptical about everything. Did God really do what he did there? A spiritualized view, on the other hand, is putting on a lens that causes you to detect all of God's activities in life. Now, go back to the text. I told you that what happened with the Israelites, what did the Israelites that experienced it? Every other person experienced it. And what should be your response? Oh, then it was not a big deal then. Right? Like, the way we understand miracles is the, my case is different miracle. You know what I mean? Well, it is only me that is experiencing it. And that makes sense. But God, here, is performing a miracle that seems general. And our response many times is, maybe it is just a coincidence. But if you have read your Bible, you understand that in a world where God exists, there is no such thing as a coincidence. The Bible says in Psalm 139, that all the days of my life were written in a book before I lived out any of them. What you are calling luck is really the powerful hand of God to bring about things to work for your good. There is no such thing as luck. God is working. God is moving in your life. You see, many times what we are calling a miracle is simply a coincidence that happens for your people. Many times we say, ah, it's a coincidence, just, just not, there's nothing to it. Hey, boy, you got it contract, didn't you? Ah, there is nothing to it, but you fed, didn't you? And many of us get to a point where you are saying, you are broke, you are stuck, you needed something. And just say, just got this idea. Something just told me, shut up. 
Something they didn't tell you. That something has a name. It's called God. He's working even with ideas, ordinary ideas to bring about transformation in your life. So many times, what you really need is not just a simple employer. What you need is not another career. Right there, even in that same industry, what the Bible is saying is that it's not about your career. It's not about your industry. It's about the God who is serving yourself. It's about the God who is able to work for your good even no matter what is happening around you. It's about that God, not about your family. It's not about your background. It's not about your past. It is about the God who is able to cause a gracious turn around even when evil is present. Even when evil is present. God is still causing turnarounds. I'm going to end with this. It's a really short sermon. And I believe this text has a message for Nigerians in 2023. Don't live your life based on policies. Live your life based on prophecies. You find it in the text. It's actually there. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. The text says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken. So a prophecy had gone forth and the policy was only following the prophecy. But if you are basically living your life depending on the policy, every time policy change, your heart will go up. Your joy goes up and down depending on how favorable the policy is. Your assurance of a future goes up and down depending on how favorable the policy is that is not the way god wants you to live why because the policy will always follow the prophecy the question then is this what prophecy has god spoken over your life i have it here in the book of jeremiah you see the people of israel were also in exile and god told them he said i'm not going to take take away you can take you guys away from exile just yet right where you are continue working right where you are continue to prosper and this is where he said this very, very popular verse that many of us know. He said, prosper, walk, do what you want to do. Why? For I know the thoughts that I have towards you. They are thoughts of good and not of evil to bring you to an expected end. That is the prophecy over the life of every believer. So Daniel was able to operate under three kingdoms. The policies were changing, but the prophecy remained the same. And he wasn't moved by it. The policy was changing. And Daniel stood fast. Why? There was a prophecy that had gone before him that he was walking with. Listen to me. You might be in a situation right now and it feels like you are stuck. What the prophecy is saying concerning your life is that God knows the thoughts that he has towards you. They are thoughts of good and not of evil. It might seem like you have been clamoring for that particular position. You have been clamoring for that particular relationship. What God is saying is that he knows the thoughts that he has towards you. They are thoughts of good and not of evil. It might seem like, how will I survive in this new Nigeria? How will I survive now that they change the policy? How will I survive now that the industry is out? What the God of God of God is saying is that he knows the thoughts that he has towards you. They are thoughts of good and not of evil. God is still able to turn your situation around. There is a songwriter that says, and they are playing it already. He says, exceedingly abundantly, above all we could ever ask or think. 
according to the power that worketh in us he is able don't give up on god because god is not ready to give up on you just yet god is still willing to turn your situation around is there anybody here that actually believes that i want you to rise on your feet and just sing the song that is playing in the background because god is still able to change the situation for your good thanks for listening if you found this sermon helpful we hope you join us in the mission of renewing lagos with the gospel by sharing it rating this podcast and following us these actions help us reach more people with the gospel you can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at city church lagos city church love jesus love people love lagos <laughs>